everyone. I think this is recording. Thanks for coming, everybody. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for being here. Um, this panel on um, podcasting and changing the media through podcasting. Um, I think we were, you know, competing with some very strong-looking panels and discussions. So um, very glad to have <laughs> such a big audience. Um, so uh, the way this session is going to work is uh, me and uh, my three guests um, are going to talk for um, a few minutes, five minutes I think, uh, about the uh, podcasting ventures that we do um, and then uh, I will just sort of invite one or two follow-up points from the panel and then we will open it up to the room uh, for questions and and comments. So just to um, introduce the panel, uh, I'm chairing. My name is Juliet Jakes. I am a writer and filmmaker and um, journalist on various subjects ranging from literature and film and visual art to politics and LGBT issues and football. Um, at some point I might ask someone to keep me updated on Norwich's game at Rotherham, which is a really big game at the top of the second division. Um, <laughs> if it was a home game, I'd be there. Someone else would be chairing this. But um, yeah, so uh, that's me. Um, to my left is Riley Quinn. Uh, Riley hosts the comedy and politics podcast Trash Future about how if we do not install fully automated luxury gay space communism then the future is and will be trash. It's true. Um, <laughs> his writing, uh, which mainly focuses on pleading with liberals to read a book other than Harry Potter. <laughs> they please should. There are so many books. Uh, features in Jacobin, The New Statesman and elsewhere. Um, I've recently asked some centrists to read something other than George Orwell, which has gone equally well. Um, <laughs> Next to me here is uh, James Shield, who um, works on the weekly um, podcast for the New Economics Foundation, uh, and has very kindly agreed to stand on this panel at the last minute, covering for Aisha, who's um, unable to join us today. Um, so thanks, James, for being here. Um, and also with me is um, Jack Frayne Reed, who is a writer uh, and co-founder and co-host of the Real Politic podcast. He was the um, writer and director of their original radio play, Tim Peaks, Farron Walk With Me, um, <laughs> and co culture editor of The New Socialist. Uh, I've also incorporated him into the Surrey Revolutionary Soviet. Um, so look out for that. It's a lonely Soviet. There's me, you, and Peter Watkins, the filmmaker. Um, good, though. He is very good. Um, so uh, I will talk briefly about um, Suite 212 first. So Suite 212 was a program I'd wanted to do for several years on Resonance uh, 104.4 FM, uh, which you should listen to um, at the last panel. A lot of you, I think, were at. Uh, we talked about Navara Media starting off on Resonance. Um, and Resonance is an artist-run um, community radio station, um, all the programs made by volunteers. Um, I was doing a PhD at the time in um, creative critical writing, um, so I had some sort of spare time and some funding to get this program going. It's an hour long program. Our tagline is that we look at the arts in their social, cultural, political, and historical context, which is 
basically saying we're a more or less explicitly leftist art show. Certainly if you look at the list of topics we've covered, it's quite obvious where our political bias is. Um, I mean, we do actually have a rule um, that we will, um, we will allow kind of liberals and centrists onto the show, um, but only if they haven't engaged in any kind of egregious left punching, which has been practiced rules most of them out. Um, <laughs> So the show's been running since <coughs> July 2017. Um, originally, I actually wanted to just do something a bit more kind of formalist, just talking to writers, artists, filmmakers about their creative practice. But in the wake of the energy um, that came with the uh, 2017 general election, I thought it would be interesting to do something um, more directly political, partly because there was an interesting leftist podcast and new media scene opening up. Uh, and I felt that... Um, you know, a lot of this stuff was, was the emphasis was more on the political with some culture, and I wanted to do something that put the emphasis the the other way around. Um, so uh, we went, we were monthly for the first year, and then we went weekly uh, last September. We expanded the hosting team, so there's now me and uh, Tom Overton and Lara Alonso Corona are the um, other hosts of the show. We take it in turns. The show does require quite a lot of work to prepare. Um, but you know, by splitting the hosting responsibilities, that becomes that becomes possible. And we've sort of slowly built up an audience, partly by tapping into this kind of online ecosystem of um, of left new media, building relationships with uh, new publications like Tribune, New Socialist, uh, building relationships with podcasts like Trash Future and um, Real Politic. Also, things like We Don't Talk About the Weather. Um, which again is just two guys doing a, a kind of regular left-wing news podcast um, and other places, um, and it's been really uh, it's been really exciting to get involved with that that ecostructure. Feel that your your sort of ecosystem sort of feel like you're part of um, of building something new. I mean, as I said in the last panel, I've also been on Navara several times, and they've been very much a model for us. Um, so that's what we've been doing with Suite Two One Two, having the radio. Um, the radio resources there is very good for us. You know, I'm not very technical, um, so most of the shows are recorded at the Resonance Studio. Uh, they go out on Resonance FM on Mondays at 2 p.m., uh, repeated on Sunday mornings. Uh, but you can also find them on like SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, and actually, having the possibility to archive these shows was very important to me. The shows are not usually, um, you know, directly kind of topical. They they are intended to have a a permanence to them, you, know, you could go back and listen to them a year or two later and hopefully they'd still be relevant, but the archiving properties of, of the internet was very important for that. Um, and I mean, we don't make any money from the show, I haven't really worked out a model um, of crowdfunding that would make it, um, you know, something that I could even spend one day a week working on. Um, so this is all done kind of voluntarily and it probably will be for the foreseeable future but um, you know I think the show is building up an audience and I think it is plugging a gap not only in this left podcast scene but in British cultural coverage more more widely um, you know I do the show because really I'm very frustrated with mainstream media cultural coverage or broadcast coverage I should say there's lots of very good uh, print cultural criticism in this country I think in art in film in literature in music and elsewhere, uh, and there are an awful lot of interesting writers and filmmakers and artists and musicians and uh, people doing activism around culture, 
Um, but I just wasn't seeing this break into mainstream arts broadcasting at all. I get very frustrated with how short the slots are on things like BBC's Front Row or um, I think they're calling it Thinking Aloud now. Um, so, you know, there are other kind of ideas slot uh, on Thinking Aloud and the slots are usually 15 minutes for, for contributors or even five minutes. Um, and with Suite 212, I wanted to open up a, a space where people could explore their work in much more detail, a bit like the old South Bank shows or mm -hmm. something. Um, so that's what I do with Suite 212. Um, I think, Riley, I'm going to start with you and then go along uh, okay. this way because we didn't agree in order before no, we, we started. This, this um, has all been put together like one of our shows. It's just sort of, you know, thrown together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean he tried to hear more about how you structure the shows in a bit. But yeah, if you want to introduce Trash Future and, um, you know, your resources and how you got started and your audience and, and so forth. Sure. Well, uh, hello. Um, so uh, Trash Future is the, um, I guess you'd say it's, it's the product of uh, me being sort of extremely disillusioned and working in what David Graeber might call a bullshit job, uh, which I won't go into any more detail on here. Um, and also a combination of that, uh, having done comedy at university, but finding doing comedy at a sort of entry or sort of slightly above entry level in London being just completely soul crushing. You end up going to the same sort of three or four gigs playing to the same other sort of small group of similar comedians like several times a week with no amount of progression, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I sort of eventually said, I can't do this anymore. I need to do something else. I need to build up sort of my own audience. And um, I think there was sort of no small amount of inspiration that came from obviously the success of Chapo Trap House, which took this lens of relentlessly ridiculing the things that we know to be ludicrous, but because they're so respectable and so of the establishment, we must give them credence anyway. So the, the, the idea that there was no, there was very little, um, or not very well known anyway, media outlets in Britain that would look at a Rod Little column and say, something like, well, this is patently ridiculous, uh, but that rather, no, he's a Times columnist, you have to respect him, you have to talk to it, engage with his arguments, as opposed to just saying, no, you're a fascist piece of trash, fuck off. <laughs> um, any case, and so it sort of, it emerged that way, and the show has been, I guess you could say it is a comedy politics podcast. It's focused on why modernity has basically broken all of its promises to everyone but like four billionaires. Um, it sort of has. Uh, like every, every innovation that you sort of run into, all of these things that are sort of disrupting or revolutionizing things, it's meant that like, every like, house around us is an Airbnb. Most of the cars are Ubers. No one seems to have a job. And, um, <laughs> or at least the jobs that they have are like, yeah, you were going to buy three hours of your time, but I hope you didn't want sick leave. Um, and, the, and, and also, the, the, the clinching incident was I saw an ad for um, a, a thing called the Juicero. Um, <laughs> sorry, do me a favor. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Juicero. Oh boy, yeah, okay, so several of you do know. I'm familiar with it through doing a Trash Future live show with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the balance of people, the brief introduction of the Juicero, I promise it's important. Um, basically, yeah, basically, this guy who was a, like, not a zillionaire, but a multi-millionaire from owning a train of cold-pressed juice bars in New York, so already sort of wanky 10 out of 10, 
um, decided he wanted to create an integrated um, supply chain software hardware platform and lifestyle company <laughs> called Juicero. And he was saying, I want cold pressed juice, but I want it in a way that will fit on my counter. Apparently, juicers didn't do that before. So uh, what you do with the Juicero is, and he, he engineered every element of this problem. He had hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital investment, literally hundreds of millions. Google invested in it, everything. And um, the end result was a juicer where you have to order their specific bags of like pulp vegetables. You hook it onto the juicer, you close the door. You have to sync it with your phone, by the way. It has to sync with your phone. You hit a button on your phone, and then it squeezes the juice out. But the problem is, we everyone quickly realized all it did was squeeze a bag that you could squeeze with your hands and get <laughs> all the juice out of it. Uh, and it cost eight hundred dollars, though. Um, so it was hundreds and hundreds of million dollars, millions of dollars, invested in an eight hundred dollar bag squeezer for um, plutocrats who lived in Northern California. And I felt as though this was just a it's it's there's it's emblematic of how colossally wasted the resources that our society produces are. And so um, initially the show started as a way to sort of lampoon that. Uh, and then we sort of, we crossed over into doing sort of cultural criticism, politics criticism, this kind of criticism. I mean, the great thing is, is that there's four of us doing it. There's myself, um, a guy called Milo Edwards, who's a comedian. Um, Hussein Kasvani, who's a journalist. Many of you might be familiar with him as the guy who keeps trolling the right wing by like saying that he's like a, a doctor at St. Tommy's Hospital and he whispers the Shahada into baby's ears, therefore turning to Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> he does that at least once a week. Once, yeah, once a week. We always get the cops called on us. It's great. Someone's like, oh, there's a guy making me Muslim. Um, please. Um, please, I'm Muslim. Um, anyway, so, and then we have a producer called Nate. Um, and the way the show grew was quite organic. So Hussein and Nate both started as guests, and then they came on full time. And through Patreon, um, we've been able to make um, pretty good cash. And so what we've done is we've rented a studio in Whitechapel that's permanently ours. We've now, like ourselves, we've soundproofed it. Um, and we're sort of getting better and better equipment. So now, I mean, I shouldn't be so thrilled about this, but our mics are attached to the table now, and they come up on arms. <laughs> I'm like, damn, feeling like Joe Rogan. Um, Why you bring them today? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, really, what's happened is it's become a thing of its own, which is quite exciting because. If you think about it, I just did it because I was like, I love shit posting, but I wish I could do it verbally. Um, <laughs> and now we've, it's sort of taken off in that sense. Uh, and I'd say it's been going up rather well. Uh, the, Juicero, the Juicero guy, by the way, um, he got, got shut down, obviously, in embarrassment when it realized you could just go, eh, and have the juice. Um, he now runs a startup that uh, does, no joke, raw water, which is basically, he finds untreated water and then sells it to you, but it's $70 a gallon. Um, but it gives you very rare forms of diphtheria, so who can say if it's good that? Um, there is actually, there's a whole Chapo Trap House episode about raw water, isn't there? Um, I think yeah. made before the yeah. guy went into raw water, yeah. so they've already... Yeah. Yeah, raw water. It's Not brilliant, thinking. folks. Don't boil um, it, though, or you won't get the diphtheria. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good advice for anybody, I think. Um, James, I'd like to bring you in next to talk about the NEF podcast. Sure. So I, I'm here because Aisha Thomas-Smith, who is our presenter, is uh, off ill today. She's got the flu, so um, that's why I'm here. Um, so I produce the weekly economics podcast for the New Economics Foundation. If you don't know who they are, 
they're a sort of left-wing think tank they've been around since the 80s um, and they we started in 2015 because James Meadway was their chief economist at the time um, and you might know his work because he's since gone and worked for John McDonnell as his um, <coughs> economic advisor. And James was writing these weekly briefings that were really good, but they were quite dense and it was quite hard to understand them. And I had a friend who worked at NEF at the time who said, we want to get him on the phone with Kirsty Stiles, who was a kind of activist within the New Economy Organisers Network run by NEF, which is sort of a spin-off campaigning arm. Um, we want to get her, she's a comedian, she's a journalist, get her in the room with James and just ask the most basic questions about economics. So every week, if you look at the, the kind of episode titles that we do, uh, lately we've done an episode on what's the deal with the Green New Deal, Public Ownership 2.0, you know, we do topical stuff when uh, Philip Hammond gets up and, and does a spring statement, that sort of thing. Um, but then we'll also do fully automated luxury communism with Aaron Bastani. Um, that sort of thing. So we, so we do that every week, and it started as uh, this sort of thing that Neff didn't totally want to put its brand on initially, because we were brand new and we were all volunteers, no one was getting paid. Um, and we'd record it in an office in, in Neff. And then um, we, we were so focused on trying to keep the quality up um, but I think we've worked crazy hours for free, which is probably not the best advice, but, but that, that's kind of how it started. And eventually it got to the point where Neff felt like, oh, this should be our product, we should put our brand on it, we should put a bit of money behind it. Um, and now I think, I'm not fully au okay fait with, with how the funding works, but I think it comes from Neff's kind of core comms budget, because they see it as such a core part of the way that they communicate. And as far as I know, they're the only think tank with a podcast quite like that, or, or certainly the first to do it. I mean, I think, does IPPR do one? I'm not sure. Um, there, there is. That's not true. Okay. Institute of Economic Affairs has one. Well, they've got the they've got the Capex podcast that I, they launched a bit, a bit later. But it, um, but I, I think we were the first. I think we were the first. <coughs> so then it kind of took off, and we were a bit like, what is this? Who's it for? What should be the tone? What should be the style? Um, and we've done things like listener surveys and try to figure out who our audience is. Because the weird thing about podcasting is that you put an episode out mm. and you can see the download figures and then you look at the response on social media and you're like, I know that more of you listen to this. Where are you? <laughs> you know, so you, you, you could put out an episode that's listened to 12,000 people and you'll get five tweets sometimes. You know, it, it'll be shared, but in terms of feedback, you don't necessarily know who they are. So we, so we now think our audience are kind of young activists who are interested in economics but don't necessarily know that much about it. And you, you have to think about it. The context was in 2015, which feels like a million years ago now, but George Osborne was the Chancellor. It was the coalition government. Um, and the left, I think, had sort of made this transition from going, we do care about economics, to, oh, now there is actually a, a possibility that we have to base our entire campaign around changing the economics, you know. And it, it was sort of, I think, who was the leader then? What, the Labour Party? <laughs> the Labour Party, but it was still, Ed still Ed Miliband, right? But it was, yeah, was yeah, it Harriet yeah. Harman? It was Harriet Harman for, for a little bit. That was the interim, yeah. Yeah. The Harman-Leslie um, axis. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was the a sense... Har -les. <laughs> the Har-Les. I think there was a sense at the time that, like, we could do critique, and the big thing that's changed since we started it is it's gone from, let's critique everything George Osborne does, to the left could actually be in power, what, in a month? I mean, who knows when the next election's going to be? And there is this sense that, like, what would, what would a debate about left economics sound like if we took ourselves really seriously? Um, so, I, and in, in kind of thinking about the, the, 
I think balance is such an interesting thing. So we did this listener survey, and the two key pieces of feedback were, um, we love the fact that you expose us to radical ideas and radical thinking, and you've got people on that aren't on Newsnight. And then the other bit of feedback was, um, sometimes we think you're not balanced enough, which is funny coming from our audience, right, who, who I imagine are as annoyed by this kind of false balance that you get on Newsnight and those sorts of programs as, as any of us are. Um, and I think when they say balance, what they actually mean is, we want to hear interesting new ideas, but we want you to be journalists. Mm. Which is an interesting challenge, is like, how do you do journalism about this without it being propaganda, to be honest? So you, you, it's perfectly possible, and it's really easy. The easiest thing to do is to make a propaganda podcast for it. <coughs> uh, the hard thing to do is to make something that's an interesting piece of journalism. Um, and in, in terms of the way that we run it, that means that we always are thinking about critical questions. We're not thinking about uh, the, the kind of wind-up, ridiculous questions that you would get if it was a panel that was like a left ec economist versus someone from the IEA. Um, what we're thinking is the Green New Deal is going to be hard to do, right? That's going to be a really big, hard thing to do. So what are some of the challenges? Um, and I think part of that is because we feel like sometimes there's a debate that has to happen within the left that's not going to happen on Sky News. So we did one on Lexit. Some people in, in, on the left think Lexit is the way to go. Some people think it's a terrible idea. Let's thrash that out. Um, so it's kind of a place to, to make that happen. Um, but the other thing is that we think our audience, I think it helps them to hear a really good left explanation of why the common right-wing arguments are not the right answers. So we will always put in our list of questions things like, well, but can you really afford that? It's going to increase the deficit. You'd have to borrow more. The public debt will go up. And sometimes you get pushback from guests who go, that's a stupid question. I'm not going to answer that. And you go, no, you should answer that because that's, people have to hear a good explanation of why that's wrong. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the style and the format and the tone of the podcast. And maybe we can talk a bit later about like, how we get the thing done. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thank you, um, James. Um, so I'm going to hand over to uh, Jack uh, now from uh, to talk about real politics. So um, we started doing real politics in mid 2016. Well, that's when we started recording it, but we didn't actually get around to releasing that episode for about half a year till <laughs> around uh, December 2016. Um, and it was founded by myself and two of my friends from university. Um, we did a film studies course together. There's uh, Tom who's over there fiddling with his shoe. And then, <laughs> and then there's Yair who lives in America and it, it's not here. Um, but I mean, uh, it's, the, the show has evolved a lot since then. I mean, our original idea was uh, <coughs> before we even recorded that first episode and then shelved it for half a year. We, uh, we were talking about setting up a, a site um, that would be a kind of, you know, insightful and uh, iconoclastic film criticism. Um, I was inspired by a site called The Dissolve in doing this, but unfortunately The Dissolve's proprietor's pitchfork um, ruled that it was uh, not financially uh, Basically, it wasn't making them any money, so they stopped doing it. So my whole kind of model for that site was uh, in tatters, and we decided not to do it. Um, but sort of being in <laughs> these like online film circles, being parts of uh, groups on Facebook where people were discussing films, I, you know, I was getting sick of all these like Hillary Clinton supporting Americans with their you know 
backwards ass reaction reviews <laughs> trying to express opinions on art that is clearly far above their heads uh, so I was like what we need is we, we need we need to bring socialism into film criticism and we should and I was like I was you know I was having a bit of a, a, a shit time at that point and so I was I, I didn't really want to write a lot so I was like let's do a podcast instead and uh, the guys were up for it, so we started doing it. And the uh, first few episodes were all about film. Um, but this, it, it, as it got into early 2017, it was an incredibly kind of febrile time o online. Um, there, was, there was a lot of... Uh, <coughs> it was one of those crisis periods for the Jeremy Corbyn project. So there was this constant negative stories coming from inside and outside of the Labour Party. And for people who supported Corbyn's leadership, it could be a very, very kind of stressful time. It felt like you didn't have any kind of space to breathe and it was just so demoralising and depressing. So we got very sort of aggressive for a while. Um, <laughs> and that was the momentum, uh, to use a very deliberate pun, that we kind of seized. Uh, so stuff like, you know, um, like it, it feels odd in retrospect, like now I, mean, I have my problems with the publication, now I'm quite friendly with, uh, with George Eaton from The New Statesman, but at the time The New Statesman published this uh, Who Will Speak for Liberal Britain issue, which was an entire issue of just everyone who they could get wrote their article about why Corbyn was shit for a whole issue, a bumper issue, and we were like, well, let's do an hour and a half episode and why the New Statesman shit. <laughs> so so that, was, that was kind of the wave that we rode, and as it got into the general election, you know, it, things were very intense. They were getting out of hand, to be honest. We were being too mean to people, in my opinion. Uh, and, and it all came to a head. We, 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 we had a run. We had a run in with the tabloids, but I don't wish to uh, go into in too much depth here. I will say none of it was my fault. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, as the last comment might suggest, we, one of our hosts, Kieran Morris, who had joined in early 2017. Uh, no longer was our host from a, a point <laughs> after that. Has uh, not been involved in the show since. Um, but we got a new new co-host, Laura, who is currently still still involved with the show, but kind of taking a break from recording with us. Um, and we and we kept the sort of um, we kept the yeah we we. <laughs> um, we, we, we tried to keep the show a kind of con confrontational uh, with regards to our, our political opponents, but we just to kind of take the pressure off us a little bit so we're not kind of pundits, uh, we focused a bit more on cultural criticism. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Sweet 212, for example, but we cover stuff that isn't as good as the stuff on <laughs> Sweet 212, stuff that, you know, that, that, that deserves a real kind of nuanced analysis. But sometimes uh, we do stuff we think is good, sometimes we uh, do stuff that it has a kind of political hook and uh, a kind of comic hook. And, um, and so, yeah, it's just turned into a kind of magazine format show, basically. We did a radio play about Tim Farron. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've done skits on the show and songs. We do little short films. Uh, I've published writing on our Patreon. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of turned into a, a sort of general creative project that we can use for, for humour and criticism and uh, kind of whatever captures uh, the muse, really. So that, that's, I'd say that's the kind of, that's where the show is coming from. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I am interested in this question of how much podcasting has democratised broadcasting. Um, you know, I've already talked about the fact that the main um, the main resource that I need for Sweet Two One Two is time, um, because you know I have access to resonance at a regular time. I have access to a recording studio and an engineer, um, but the the show is is quite research heavy, um, and you know Riley has spoken about like crowdfunding and acquiring a studio. Um, I know you do um, Real Politic uh, just via Skype. Mm, yeah, I think you... our hosts are very geographically spread out, and that's also why yeah, Trash Future can kind of get live shows together, and, and it's quite difficult for us. Yeah, um, it's something that we've only done once, the, the live show in a gallery in Birmingham. Um, and James, I think you wanted to talk a bit more about the just the production process of the, the podcast and the resources that you've got. Yeah, I mean, it, um, I mean, we're sort of lucky in that we're based, it, it comes from a from an existing organisation with a bit of funding behind it, right? So the, the New, New Economics Foundation has a has a communications budget, um, and, and but we're working still quite a DIY fashion, and it, it was originally a sort of DIY production in a way. Um, so I do it as a as a freelancer. Aisha does it effectively as a freelancer in terms of her time. We get a little bit of support from people within NEF in terms of booking. Um, but I think you're totally right that time is the main the main sort of barrier to entry. So if you think about equipment, you could make something that sounds as good as anything on the radio if you've got a few hundred quid to spend on equipment, which is still a barrier to entry, but it's nothing like the barrier to entry for video, which is a kind of whole order of magnitude beyond that. So uh, so I, I do, what, seven hours a week on it? Um, and that's, what we tend to do is we have a meeting once every couple of months, we think about the topics we want to cover, we set out a bit of a plan for the series, um, and think about who we want to get, and what we're trying to do is kind of preempt what we think is going to be timely, which is hard to do. But there's, you start to get a sense of like, oh, I think this series is the series to talk about the Green New Deal. I think this series is the time to do Lexit versus Remain. Um, but then we leave some slots open for something's going to happen this week, and we should talk about whatever it is that just happened. Um, but it, the resource thing is a big issue because booking is a whole job. You know, so so when you think about production, you're, uh, I'm I'm in this Facebook group called the Podcaster Support Group, which is <laughs> normally quite a nice sort of friendly group. And what's yeah. lovely about it is it's run by uh, Helen Zaltzman, who's a broadcaster, right. has done a lot of traditional radio, and she makes this big podcast uh, through this, this US network called The Illusionist, um, and she does it professionally, makes a living out of it. And then there are people who are like. Hello, I'm like in my garage somewhere, and I'm doing my first episodes, um, and and it, so it's a really nice community. But part of the problem is like what often comes up is which which mic should I buy, and how do I record a Skype call? But the more interesting questions are like, what should my format and tone be? Mm. You know, how do I get the resources together to get guests every week? How do I get bigger guests who are then going to like? And it's harder for us, I think, because we're a guest-driven show, so you can't just like get the same people in the studio all the time, it's like every week we have to have someone else. Yeah. And the logistics of making that happen are difficult, especially if you want to have a debate, because it's like if this person pulls out, it then tilts the episode in a particular direction. Um, but I, th I think what's always useful is to have someone who, who does the job of a producer. So, um, you know, because of this podcast, 
it's kind of launched Aisha's sort of broadcasting she, career. I mean, she's doing it sort of part-time, but like she's hosted economics with subtitles for the BBC um, and the Y Factor for the World Service and then some other stuff coming up. Um, and then it's also helped me do this full-time. So I left my job uh, a year and a bit ago um, and I'm now head of audio at the RSA based on the work that I did for NEF as a freelancer and I've done other bits and pieces and it, it, it helps to have a producer and, and kind of think about what is the job of a producer because it's, it's the person who's got the time to do all the stuff to make your show actually happen. I mean the other great thing our producer does is he's a nice sort of slander net um, where <laughs> he catches all of the you know actionable defamation uh, <laughs> and uh, edits it out. I know it's, I, I've had, since the produ since Nate our producer joined our show, it's totally transformed. Absolutely, to have someone who's basically before I was doing all the research and structuring all the content and putting all of that together, um, and then we would record, and um, then I, I also because it was sort of my baby, I guess. I also was then cutting it together on GarageBand. So the early episodes just sound dog shit. Um, but the later ones sound much better. And it's really been, it is this process of just accidentally getting better in fits and starts. Um, but it, it is, it, well, it is sort of completely essential. The other thing I would say is like, if I'd known that there was this podcaster support network, things would have probably been quite different. Because I basically did as much sort of, you know, internet research as I could as to, okay, I guess I'll buy this mixer, which turned out to be wrong. Um, and then I guess I'll use GarageBand, which turned out to be horrible. Um, where sort of we learn slowly by trying and making endless mistakes. Uh, eventually, it got us to a place where we had a tolerable setup, and that tolerable setup then got us the public support where people started paying for the, so we do two episodes a week, one paid, one on Patreon. But then people started getting more and more wanting to listen to it and wanting to pay for it, and then that is what really unlocks, like, okay, now we can get, like, a super professional mixer. Now we can have, like, the good microphones on the fun arms, and so on. So it really, you cannot overstate the importance of good production. And even if you don't have a producer, if you want to start a podcast, which I obviously encourage everyone to do all the time, I mean, don't do our subject, because we do that one. Um, <laughs> excuse me. But even just like getting that information and knowing the right things to do right away can save you so much money. I think one of the interesting things is the barriers to entry. It's like, <coughs> excuse me, swallowed some water wrong. Was <coughs> it raw water? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This yeah. is diphtheria. So this, this, anyone wants to take over the main host on Trash Future, I'm going to die of diphtheria. <laughs> um, you know, so the, the barriers to entry is like, what, 140 quid, basically, to get like a mixer and audio interface and like a microphone and a couple of cables. Like, it's all you need. Unless you are, assuming you already have a computer, et cetera, et cetera. But the barriers to entry are like ludicrously low, considering if you I need to rent a radio station, I think, okay, no, you can't. It costs a million quid. Um, yes, that is my production thought. Yeah, I mean, something, um, one of the reasons I came to <coughs> podcasting uh, as a listener, um, you know, started listening to like Riley's show, Jack's show, uh, certain other things that I've mentioned, is because before 2015, before Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, you know, two, two things that I often turned to to fill my time, and one of them I actually worked in quite a lot, was uh, opinion journalism. Uh, you know, I was always reading uh, kind of columnists, you know, that was where I went for sort of analysis and wouldn't necessarily agree with them a lot of the time, but kind of found it interesting to disagree with them. 
Um, and then, you know, for sort of entertainment, uh, went to a kind of like a handful of comedians, not very many, but, you know, would spend a lot of time watching kind of comedy on, on YouTube. Um, and I think it's fair to say that those two sectors have not responded particularly gracefully to um, Corbyn being leader of the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> And, you know, podcasts, uh, things like Chapo Trap House and you know, some of the other things I mentioned, you know, often combined analysis and humour uh, in a way that really appealed to me. Um, and I think that's been a real strength of the format. I mean, um, Chapo Trap House, Trash Future, Real Politic uh, will all, you know, kind of read articles from the mainstream media and kind of respond to them in a way that is infinitely not just funnier but more insightful than the um, than the original content. So I think it's interesting that there is this kind of direct relationship between legacy media and podcasting in that way. Um, and so I feel like a lot of left-wing political podcasts are responding to centrist and right-wing um, print more so than, than broadcast. Whereas, yeah, you know, what I'm trying to do with Sweet 212 is put a left perspective into, specifically into a broadcast um, sort of environment. Um, I mean, how far do the panel feel that podcasting can challenge legacy media in such a way or provide an alternative to it? And like, how interested are you in doing that? Any of you? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, th I think... I think one of the smarter things that, and I have nothing to do with this, so it's, it's not my own project, but I think one of the smartest things that NEON has done is to develop the spokesperson network. Because if, if, you're a, if you're a producer on Sky News and you've got two hours to get some sort of debate together, who are you going to phone up? So the reason I think that the IEA is always getting a spot is because it's so easy to get them on. They're always available. They're, I mean, say what you like about their politics, but like, they're articulate people who defend whatever their point of view is, um, and they're a bit of a rent-a-gob, and you, they're going to say the thing that you expect them to say. So, whereas in, in the past, if you were going to go for a more progressive point of view, who do you book? Well, you know, you can go for a Labour MP, but what are their politics going to be? Uh, you could go for Polly Toynbee, but that's about as left as, as you might get sometimes on, on the Andrew Marr show. Um, and so what, what Neil was trying to do is, is say, here are some actual really good left voices, and let's make it easy for TV and radio producers to pick up the phone and call us and get someone on. Um, and so that, and the, the bearing that that has on podcasting is, that's a, that's a three minute slot, four minute slot. Um, you might get to say a couple of sound bites. Podcasting can give you a chance to develop your ideas a bit more and have more of a conversation with other people. So we kind of see it as part of our job to develop interesting left voices, who then, because they've been on our podcast and because it's been around for a bit, might then get booked on more mainstream media. Um, and I think Aisha getting booked to host a podcast about economics, I mean, the immediate effect that that had was they wanted to pair her with a right-wing comedian. And she said, I'm not going to do it if you do that. Um, and she just found him a bit repulsive, and so they <laughs> swapped him out for someone else. So just by having a progressive voice as one of the presenters changed the shape of that program. Um, and I think she did a really good job of kind of challenging some of the producers and going, you know, economics is not a kind of fixed science. You know, there, there are different points of view within economics, and there's a certain sort of quite fixed idea within the BBC of what economics is. You know, deficits are bad. Uh, it is kind of the, the place that they come from and that, that's just a sort of scientific fact of, of, of the sort of physics of, of economics. So 
podcasting, by, being, by having been around for a while now, we're starting to get some of our regulars will then get booked on Newsnight or something like that. Aisha will get booked as a presenter. And then the big thing, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days, with, after the shootings in New Zealand, people have been talking about, well, let's, have a, let's rewind and look at the way that our national conversation <coughs> has, has gone. And who's been responsible for whipping up Islamophobia in this country? And quite rightly, a lot of right-wing columnists have been called out about that the past couple of days. And not even massively right-wing people, but centrists who've just kind of allowed it to happen. Yeah. Um, the other thing to think about, though, is the producers. All of these shows are, are made by producers. If you listen to the, you know, if you listen to the Moral Maze, that script at the beginning, the first couple of minutes, is written by a producer. <laughs> you know, it's not written by um, who's the guy. The old news guy. I can't yeah. listen to it. Michael Burke. Yeah, so that's so it's framed by a producer. The guests are selected by producers. How can you get interesting producers who are progressive into these organisations? And you have to have a bit of a back catalogue to do that. So I've tried to I've tried to make the show as good as we can make it. Uh, I mean, it is partly self-interested, but like I want to be in there, being one of those producers who's making hopefully better decisions than they are. Um, and I have to have a bit of a track record. So off the back of this, I've been able to do bits of work for the BBC and Audible um, and other places. Um, so, sorry, yeah, Riley and Jack, if you want to add some quick thoughts and then we'll go to questions and comments. Sure, I, I, I think the one other thing is, um, like that's absolutely right, like all of these voices never had anywhere to go and now they do. I think one of the ways that you, if we want to be real Marxists about this, which I'm pretty sure we all do. Absolutely. Oh yeah, hell yeah. Um, let's go. Um, so, one of the, if you look at the look at the way that every, that podcast versus legacy media are funded, uh, legacy media tends to be funded by advertising and distributed by grabbing eyes on newsstands, which means that what their job is to to do is is to be as eye catching as possible, or to make you stop surfing the channel um, by sort of creating a lot of heat basically with, with conflict. And so the, this is one of the reasons that it's so obsessed with balance. <coughs> However, if you're going to have a, a perspective of moral clarity, which again, I think the left is at its best when it does, then that's not the kind of communication that you have to engage in. Um, and so if you're, if you're the Times or even the Guardian and you're trying to sell papers, or if you're Newsnight and you're trying to distract eyes, you're not going to have any depth. You're not going to be willing to take a moral stand because you're trying to get as many people in as possible. We're not concerned about that. We know that there is no Tory who's going to listen to Trash Future unless they want to make themselves angry, which they love doing. I, mean, I don't know if they listen to us, but they love to get like invent stuff to make themselves angry. Um, and so. What we're, what we, we, can, we have the luxury of being, not the luxury, well some might say the luxury, some might say the job, whatever, of actually like picking and advancing a point of view rather than just perpetuating a conversation for conversation's sake. And I think that's like one thing that is totally unique about this medium that I don't think Apple intended to, in, to create when it invented them. I mean, yeah, I have my doubts as to the actual ability of uh, political podcasting to enact genuine political change. Yeah, but fair. what I think can be its function is as a source of catharsis for people who are alienated from the standard discourse that you see kind of all across um, the mainstream media, be it, you know, the Daily Mail or The Guardian. I mean, it's... Uh, 
it's n there's not really a, a good reason beyond just deeply ingrained ideology that there is such little representation of people <coughs> on the left in the media and you know it's not it's not there's no argument to be made that it's representative of the country to have so few Corbyn supporters <coughs> at the Guardian that, um, or, or just a more specific policy-based example you know pretty much every journalist columnist bar Owen Jones including ones on the left seem to think that a second referendum is just this natural thing that of course we should have and there's massive arguments against that and there's a, there's a huge debate about that on the left you wouldn't know it reading the guardian or uh, other mainstream press so i think for people who feel frustrated that the left can't get its uh, its opinions across to listen to something where we're not pretending that Mike Gates is a serious person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where we I are take those milk memes very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> he is an absurd human being on every level. And people have to go into the lobby every day and pretend that Chris Leslie is more than just the hard left meme. And Mike Gates is more than just a silly man ranting about milk. Uh, and for the people who, who are aware that that is the reality, that this is that these people are jokes <laughs> and that their politics is spent uh, you might get something out of listening to real politic or to trash future you know however much uh, you know real politic uh, have a chance of winning the next election for the Labour Party <laughs> yeah I mean certainly the establishment of the independent group and the sort of the the gulf between the sort of media saying like look how much fun they're having they look like a group of like <laughs> yeah. they look like a group of teenagers who've just found love and it's beautiful and then like, they've like me and my mates watching Anna Subri like with like Kirsty Walk giving her the most softball interview being like we're really excited about the independent group what is it you stand for and they're like change and it's just like <laughs> <laughs> and all the journalists like me? yeah that, that's not stupid yeah we're yeah. just saying change yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah that's cool <laughs> it's like twirling 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 towards freedom but it's um, frustrating from the outside yeah so it's oh, infuriating um, <laughs> uh, so I want to open up to questions and comments now um, I'd be particularly interested you know anyone's in the room who runs their own podcast and has any experience they want to share questions about any of the practical aspects of setting up podcasts or keeping them running that we haven't covered um, so I'll take maybe sort of two or three questions at a time. So we've got two questions here and then two questions there. So actually if I take all four of you and then the panel will respond to them, then hopefully we'll have time for at least one other set of questions. So yeah, I, if we go this way, so if you want to start. Okay, uh, question mainly for Jack, but um, it might apply to other people. Um, one of the main sticking points I'm having on a starting a podcast is about content rights and stuff mm. so in terms of and you, your podcast is a good example because you use so much we have like a flagrant movie, disregard for copyright so, law <laughs> <laughs> movie clips music clips from the bbc and stuff how can i get around this kind of stuff um, yeah don't use kanye west that's the only time we've got caught when <laughs> Is it worth getting like a normal license, like limited online music license thing? If you're clipping something from the BBC, <laughs> you know. I, I generally um, figure, well, you know, all right, I don't actually pay film, a license, films but. And TV. So, <laughs> are you like. 
basing it on like fair use. Yeah, or, yeah, I think that's. Yeah. Do you know anyone that's come down a kind of alternative process um, of uh, like trying to get uh, rights acquisition? I think a lot of people just kind of stay clear of copyrighted mm. stuff, basically, which is you know probably quite a reasonable thing to do. I figure I re I reckon the BBC aren't they're not going to go after you if you use something from their stuff and like you know if if you're a fucking taxpayer then they, they you should be able to use the BBC stuff I think just as a point of principle I don't I'm know how sure that that's works stand up in the <laughs> Yeah all right <laughs> but but no um yeah like I say I I their use is on dodgy Oh yeah 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 no I'm totally just admitting to breaking the law here but like um yeah, I think generally with older music, obscure music, uh, it's it's been fine. Like I say, Kanye West has got lawyers. Using that clip from him was was a bad idea. However, subsequently I've used little bits of like modern mainstream hip hop, and I've just pitch shifted it slightly. Uh, so that that's possibly a suggestion uh, if you want to get away with it. Well, if I can add as well. Uh, Anyone who listens to our show will know every episode I thank the creator of our theme song. We just asked him, uh, like, hey, can we use it? And he was like, yeah, sure. Just credit me every episode. And I was like, well, now people are going to say it to me all the time, but we do just do that. <laughs> I mean, I use the same theme song for uh, Sweet 212 every week, which is a piece by the um, Austrian uh, experimental kind of um, electronic and guitar artist, Christian Fenez. Um, he hasn't been in touch yet. I think he might like the show. If he gets in touch, I'll invite him on. Um, <laughs> so to what having a house party? Invite the neighbours. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think we have three more questions in this round, so I'd like to take those three um, all together and then we will answer them. So if, would you like to ask a question? And then you two. Not necessarily a question, but you did elicit contributions from Absolutely, yeah. people who produce the podcast. So I do produce a podcast, and I'm going to shamelessly plug it, but uh, I do have a lot of observations. It's really interesting to hear your experiences, you know. So uh, my podcast is The Taxcast, which I started uh, eight years ago uh, for the Tax Justice Network, and we talk about a lot of the, the some similar issues to you. Uh, you know, we're about tax havens, corruption, uh, financial secrecy, and what we can do about it. And um, yeah, there's a lot I could say, um, but I, I do think it's been really fascinating to, for me, and really surprising to see the impact of what I've been doing. You know, because sometimes you, you produce something, you release it out there, and you don't know, you don't have the type of interaction that you might like, um, however much you try to encourage it, it just goes out to the world. And, you know, eight years later, I've now got a Spanish language podcast that goes all across Latin America. I've got one in Arabic, I've got one started just now in African French, another one in Portuguese. And I get contacted by politicians who, who have been listening to, because it's very solutions-based stuff because I don't see the point of people going away depressed because we have enough of that already. Um, so, um, you know, and if we're not going to talk about solutions then what, what's, what's the point of sort of you know, drowning ourselves in more misery? Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I wouldn't underestimate the impact of what all of us are doing at all for a moment and I think it's really helpful to remind ourselves you know, I mean, I'm absolutely amazed sometimes. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've 
somebody uh, was speaking at the United Nations of all places and in the first sentence said, uh, this was one of the heads of the IRS in the United States, I mean, go figure. And he said, yeah, I listen to the tax cast every, every month. And he right. said, that's the United, you know, and, and that's from me, you know, eight, it, it, you know, nine years ago, coming up with this concept, I, I loved the Tax Justice Network and the work they were doing, and I thought, wow, these guys would be brilliant if they did some kind of, uh, you know, they had a podcast, so I asked yeah. them, would you like one? And it, it's amazing how ideas can spread. Um, yeah. And the conversation can be changed and, uh, you know, and the type of people that are listening uh, are looking for new ideas and for, because we are filling a gap, but it's just <coughs> like you have all been saying, we're filling a very, very important gap and people want it and we, you know, I can go on and on, but I'm not asking any questions, but thanks for <laughs> No, and I mean, something that really struck me with, uh, you know, Navara Media, I'd been listening to them for sort of two or three years, and then, you know, they they had an audience in a sort of, you know, quite sort of London, quite academic, quite student-y left, um, and, you know, they built up the show over several years, and it had been interesting to listen to, but of course when Corbyn put his hat into the ring for the Labour leadership, and all the mainstream media were just like, who's this old granddad? Um, that's just a joke. Um, you know, Navara kind of did a long interview with him and took him seriously, and you know that really uh, you know pushed their audience up uh, an awful lot. So I don't know what that is. Um, yeah, do you want to take it? Yeah. Can I just add that yeah. I think part of what we're involved in is generational shifting power. Yeah. And this is a really big part of that. So, just to add so two questions uh, here. Yeah, um, just want to say, really, really interesting. As somebody who's kicking around the idea of doing a podcast and union, union organizer as well, my day job. Um, so just keen to maybe bring them. I've seen some good union podcasts. One of the things I've often wondered about, as on the, on the sort of UK side, if there's any interest in doing something similar to the best of the left, because I think it's great that individual shows are having success. I suppose my concern is. How do we ensure that we're still having that plurality and we don't end up with, say, one or two big winners mm -hmm. and, and everyone else kind of starving? And I wondered, in a similar sort of spirit, I guess, to the Media Fund, whether any of you guys have thought about that, whether collaborating, maybe sharing content, it fits in the, the rights issues as well. Um, just wondered if that's something that's been kicked around on the scene, because it seems to be, it's done well in the US, but I don't see it in the UK. Mm -hmm. just Thank you, and uh, yeah. Next. Um, yeah, I, I previously produced a podcast, not a politics one, so I won't mention it. But uh, that uh, that thing you mentioned about it's hard to have a um, any kind of dialogue with your audience or know exactly what they want, or you know, I, I just want, was interested to know what you thought and um, how important on a scale of one to ten it is to have an online presence or <coughs> social media channels as well. When obviously time is of the essence, is that something that is important to do as well as the podcast itself. And actually we have one more question at the front here which I'd like to take as well. Yes, thank you. I mean it, it sounds all jolly and everything else that goes with that. I mean in terms of the business model if I can say. Um, so I come from radio background, 33 years, five years with the BBC and then the commercial radio sector. Um, it's great what you're doing, but can I just ask, I mean, in terms of an entry level, you're, you're doing what you're doing, but what's your exit strategy? When do you say, look, I've had enough now, I'm not actually making a fucking penny. <laughs> yeah. I'm putting all these resources and all this time, uh, when do I call it a day? Mm -hmm. But more importantly, and, uh, you know, please do ask me some questions. So, in terms of the way technology's moved on, um, things have become cheaper, we're obviously now talking to manufacturers. 
if you're stuck, you know, if you're looking for uh, to make a vocal uh, booth, you know, there is technology there, there is stuff happening, and I think it's empowerment, and I think you're doing some great, great work, and I think, you know, solidarity. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that question of exit strategy is quite interesting, because, you know, like I said earlier, the, um, the show I do is a colossal amount of work. Um, and yeah, I probably won't do it forever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I think I will just have a a sense of when it's time to stop, when I've kind of run out of subjects to cover, or if it's getting in the way of other work I want to do. Um, I think that would be, you know, I think there will be a sort of natural conclusion to it. But like, if the show doesn't sort of substantively increase its audience within, you know, a couple of years, then yeah, I might reconsider. Um, I mean, that thing about dialogue with audience is interesting that, um, that people have mentioned. Um, I mean, like, I have a social media account for the programme that I run, uh, but I, like, I really, really, really fucking hate Twitter. Um, <laughs> so most of my posts are just like, show's on today. <laughs> show's on now. Here's the show. Here's some things we talked about in the show. See you next week. And then the rest of the time it's just like retweeting people about politics but not really saying anything myself. Um, so those are my feelings about social media. But yeah, I mean, you know, I came to Real Politic through, through their Twitter account because it was so kind of anarchic and funny and, uh, you know, did sort of really, really, really explore the sort of issue of Tim Farron's opinion, opinions about frogs and <laughs> uh, with a sort of forensic detail that couldn't be found anywhere else. Um, we've, we've built a lot of our audience uh, through our use of Twitter. It's, it's a shame they keep suspending us. <laughs> Does anyone report you? Or, uh, uh, probably. I assume. Uh, it's Chris Leslie in my game. I'm silly reporting you. They call me Milk Boy again. <laughs> um, we, we should post our way to, um, to, to an audience as well. Like, at, like we, like all, like all of the hosts of our show are pretty extremely online. Like that, to be honest, it shapes a lot. Of, as is, as is Jack. He keeps getting banned. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got to lay low every few months and lock my account so they don't find me. Um, but like we also, I think like the humor of our show is deeply influenced by like Twitter humor. Mm. Um, sort of, and, and Twitter humor is sort of quite, it's, it's sort of confrontational and absurdist and so on because a lot of Twitter humor is not just about. You know, dunking on Julia Hartley Brewer. I mean, a lot of it's about that, but not all of it. Uh, a lot of it's also about like making sure you have the attention. So it's about combine. It's in, it comes back to that attention getting thing, and so you find like that format of having that online presence where all of the, the even the four of our hosts we're, we're interacting with one another on Twitter quite a bit. Um, it's, it's, sometimes we might all respond to the same person, which has been called the podcast broadside. Um, <laughs> but uh, will and, and that sort of means that there's always a conversation kind of going on, and so the fan, I find the fans can tend to engage with it sort of as much or as little as they want, um, and that sort of has produced that's produced a situation where I think now it's it's like it, it it's a, a friend of mine called this a parasocial relationship 
where there are people who feel like they're friends with you but who haven't met you. Because it's like you're hanging out for a couple of hours every week. It's just, it's in a conversation where they don't contribute as much. Yeah. One, of the, yeah. one of the best things I ever saw was there was, um, a, a, and, and here we go describing the internet, there was a, a picture of um, a sign with a few people on it, um, and the sign was a few people laughing with ice cream. And then um, there was another girl sitting beside the sign, also laughing with ice cream. And it was captioned, what it's like to listen to a podcast. <laughs> um, which is true, it, is, it develops this parasocial relationship. But you can't overstate the importance of not of a social media presence beyond just, by the way, there's a show, but of having that sort of personality out there. Because that's really what you have. And that's why people want to tune in, is because it's like, I like this guy. I think such a brilliant counterexample of that is um, Liam Fox commissioned a podcast lately. <laughs> so the, the Department for International Trade commissioned a podcast. They spent a hundred grand. The thing we don't know is does that include the advertising spend, which I think cost about sixty grand. I think they spent about sixty grand on on adverts. They made six episodes. They had a total of eight thousand downloads, which is not a lot. Which means like twelve hundred per episode or something like that. Hosted by Nick Hewer, the guy off Countdown, and, uh, and The Apprentice. So he's not a huge celebrity, but like he's relatively famous. Huge amount of money, nobody listens to it. And the reason is that that's not, the, that's not how we discover podcasts. We don't go and listen to a podcast because Nick Hewer comes on and he's like, hello, trading is good, and you should do international trade. Like, you, you listen because of word of mouth. So like, I discovered real politics because a friend of mine texted me and was like, this is amazing about the New Statesman. They just absolutely rinsed the New Statesman. <laughs> and you should listen. Sorry, George. And I, was, and I, was, I was doing some editing work on the New Statesman podcast at the time, and I was like, I should listen to it. And then I discovered Trash Future, because um, I think a friend of mine, it showed up on my Facebook as like someone was going to your live show. And I was like, that is... I can't believe someone else has like got that name. That is such a perfect name. Uh, and then Rob Delaney obviously is what one and a half million yeah, people he's quite, follow him on Twitter. Famous, yeah. And you had him on there. Like, yeah, really nice. Another sort of prompt. So I think it's a social thing. You're totally right. It's, it feels like you're hanging out with your friends. I mean, yeah. ours is slightly more in the model of a traditional current affairs show, so it's got less of that. We don't have the same regular people apart from the presenter. Mm. Um, but it's really a social, just to kind of touch on some of the other things, content rights and fair use, I'll keep it really, really short. If you go to the Channel 4 website, they've got a great article about- Listen to uh, him, not About me. fair use and <laughs> I mean, the, the main thing is you can probably fly under the radar, right? Yeah. But if you're, if you're producing work for someone else and you're selling it to them, you don't want to put them in a situation where they're taking risks. Mm. So Channel 4 website sets it out. Basically, it's about, are you using a clip for the purposes of criticism rather than illustration is the and you can interpret that however you want music i would go to free music archive has a lot of creative commons music some of it is even suitable to use for commercial purposes uh, audio network you can you can license it what about unofficial bob dylan bootlegs <laughs> <laughs> i think it's like do you think you can get away with it I yeah. take it on a bootleg by bootleg. Bootleg's a fair game, I think. <laughs> a little bit. I, I think on that thing about sharing resources, one thing we don't have in the UK, so we do have this sort of big advertising company called Acast, and if you want to have ads on your podcast, Acast is, mm. is essentially the only place to go. Um, there's also Audio Boom, but they almost went bust, so don't touch them. But like, what we don't have is a UK version of Radiotopia, which is a non-profit US sort of collaborative people making really high production stuff like 99% Invisible. Um, and they share some resources and some expertise and we don't have that yet. So maybe that's something that we should, that we should have. 
In terms of exit strategy, it's part of the charitable goals of NEF and the RSA to put interesting stuff out there and educate people. So it's, it's kind of, in those cases, it doesn't have to make money. You know, we have looked for donations in the past, but it's part of our charitable mission to, to do that. Um, we're going to have to uh, leave it there. Um, sadly, it means I don't have time to elaborate on uh, my point about Matthew Dancona's drugstore culture. Their engagement figures were. Uh, thank you all for coming. We. Closing plenary is downstairs in five minutes. Uh, hope to see you all there. Thank you, everyone. Tom, nearly. Which button do you stop recording with? <laughs> I've been on it, it's good. Yeah, it was fantastic. That's what I think. Thank you. Do you still do the new statement? I did it for a year and a half. Let me just grab my phone. Oh, thank you. Tom, you have to be the last person over. Which button is it? Stop or record?